Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. You are picking the wrong exercise. You should never do this exercise if you want to make hypertrophy happen. And we have the demonization of several exercises that we see promoted by all kinds of different people. And then the pendulum swings to where, no, that exercise is, is now a great one to do, or now it's the, the, the next best one to do, right? And then we get kind of mixed in and chasing dogma around how hard should you be training? You're training too hard. You're not training hard enough. You're not training more not accurate enough. And so that's the conversation of today of where do we really lie for hypertrophy training? Um, how tr- training too hard, like where does that stop? And also exercise selection, what, what makes sense, you know? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of this conversation with the framework of it sits in understanding that there's a spectrum of this across different exercises as in, like you're not going to be on one extreme or the other the entire time, right? And also understanding that potentially experience may play a role in this as we get really specific with exercise selection with the higher level of experience of the athlete and that those movements and that level of execution that builds the foundational hypertrophy for a beginning athlete is going to look a lot different than the the level of execution and the specificity of exercise selection that we're choosing for these individuals that are, are a lot further along in their bodybuilding career. So a lot of it is going to start there, and then we're going to be able to tease out kind of where does each apply and, and then kind of lay out the spectrum across the different variances of exercises. I think it's interesting how – because we got to a kind of an age where like – information education is just so readily available where everyone's an educator and there's a lot of parroting that does go on. And a lot of it, people get just tired of listening to, Hey, this is way too excessive for like biomechanics and setting up a lift. It seems like it's overcomplicating it. And when it seems too overcomplicated, you start losing people that, Hey, I just want to go train and enjoy this and train hard. Um, and they're just say, oh, that's bullshit. You're small, right? <laughs> if, if there is someone that doesn't have the development alongside that, or it's the guy that just trains really hard and like, dude, look how big I am. Like, I don't need to do those things. And that that is a conversation in, in and of itself. But I, I still think a lot of this stuff for biomechanics and cueing and setting up lifts have been around for a very long time. I think it just becomes who's saying these things and how well they are perceived as well. For 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 an in- instance, Charles Glass, it has been doing this for years and years and years. He was like the guy to go to to really like hone in form, get more precise in movements, and and like get a feeling for muscle that no one else could pull out of you. And you'd see his setups, and, like, some of these were pretty intricate. It was very precise on how he was cueing guys to, you know, whatever it was, drive the elbow or get in a, get in a pattern. And that was a just, just a bro. Like, Charles Glass is, like, the bodybuilder's bodybuilder, right? Like, he just learned in the trenches stuff that worked where you feel it, and that's what he taught. But I think from coming from that background – 
Charles is perceived different than someone that came from the research world that doesn't have all the bodybuilding backing, even though the messages could be pretty similar, but they're just spoken a little, little bit differently. Yeah, and it's it's also could potentially too just be a, a habit of resonating with the people that you're used to communicating with, right? It's like the researcher that communicates with researchers on their day to day is going to speak in that language relatively to the person who's in the gym, you know, seven days a week coaching people or training people, speaking to athletes who may not have that level of education. Like people get so caught up in because uh, uh, a common comment I get is you're overcomplicating it or you're, you're using big words just to make yourself sound smart. It's like, well, no, I just, I talk to people like you and other educators who that's the standard of language that we speak at. And I'm actually pulling it down to try to bring the, the crowd up. But at the end of the day, it's the same message of training body parts with a close proximity to failure. I'm just picking out the things that I see done wrong for those who have the weak body parts because Another one that we kind of get to come across my page too quite frequently is, well, I don't do that and my back's fantastic. And that's kind of oftentimes not from the perspective of someone that's a coach. Because most of the time coaches understand that the genetic predisposition to develop a body part is a large predetermining factor with what you can get away with, right? And you can like look at like a Ronnie Coleman and look at those T-bar rows and those deadlifts and those squats and be like, you know, is his posterior chain development directly correlated to that or partially correlated to his propensity to drive tension there? And largely it's going to be that. And a lot of the conversation we're having when we're getting hyper-specific with setups is for the individuals who can't even drive mechanical tension there in the first place, which is the mediator of hypertrophy. Yeah, I think you, you – so a few things with that that said that were, that were right on is the – for one, like – the beginner that's coming up, right? They haven't run into like the roadblocks of needing to get ultra, ultra precise with, with form because they don't need as much specificity yet in their training. So you could have movements that are more global in stimulus because they don't need as much direct stimulus to a muscle to grow, but also they kind of need everything. So it, and even the precision within that, like, yes, good form should be met, but they're not running into those issues yet um but the person that as you get more advanced a lot of the people that come to us are ones like hey i can't get my back to grow hey my chest won't grow and everything else is so this is when like the the troubleshooting comes in and like yeah they do all the movements that everyone else does they do bench press and flies and all those other things but why aren't they working for that that individual and to use the other point that you brought up about the the genetic elite these guys can just touch weights and they're going to grow. So <laughs> to say like, hey, R Ronnie had, had an amazing posterior chain and he just did deadlifts. I was like, Ronnie could probably have done any movements. He could have probably done all isolation movements and had an incredible physique, right? Um, and so it's, it's hard to use those as our evidence. Evidence nonetheless, but I think as, as a whole, you have to look across the, the population that you're, trying to apply this information to and also tease out like, Oh, why did that work for Ronnie? Like, why is it not working for these other people? And we can never just say never do deadlifts or you should only be doing deadlifts. 
it because it depends on the person and and that's why we can't just apply like what are the best in the world do and use use that for everyone because they are the best in the world for specific factors that are unique to them these other people don't have those same factors so there is going to be have to be an approach that matches what those those factors are that they don't have right yeah exactly and I think if we start to break this down, there's probably specificity within movement patterns where different points in the session can be a little bit more technical than others, right? And I think that starts with the, the compound work. And I think uh, an example that illustrates this is squatting. Um, and, and a reason that I think an example illustrates this is squatting is for the individual who has no movement limitations in being able to squat and they're able to just kind of squat freely. The biggest thing I'm looking for is depth and control in the transitions. And if they're achieving those two goals, I can just pick the squat pattern that allows them to bias whatever it is that I'm wanting to bias. So if it's the quad bias pattern, then I'm choosing a quad bias squat pattern. If it's something that might be a little bit more glute based, then I'm choosing a little bit more glute based pattern. Where the thinking comes in a lot of times is for people who can't execute it. And they have movement limitations or there's some reason why they can't get into a full depth squat or control within their squatting is not there. And then this is where even a little bit more advanced cueing comes in, but relative to cueing a squat to cueing a single arm pull down or a single arm cable pullover, it's going to be a lot different because the end goal is driving a large mechanical tension stimulus with a compound movement that is going to provide attention stimulus across various body parts. And so really you're kind of narrowing what you're looking for within these compound patterns to the big drivers or the bigger impacts where in these single joint exercises and some of these ones that can be a little bit more specific, you might not even be driving tension to the targeted body part if the nitty gritty details aren't achieved. Yeah, I, that's a, a unique comparison because it, it used to be like completely accepted, right? If, if you've been squatting and at some point you get pretty strong in a squat, just the fatigue is going to be limiting your ability to do for one, a number of volume, maybe the volume throughout your, less your workout, or maybe, man, maybe your glutes and your lower back are just smashed and you just can't get enough stimulus into your quads doing so and quads is the goal then someone moves to a hack squat something that is a little bit more precise for them that's well accepted but what's not accepted is if you had someone doing a a bent over barbell row and all of a sudden they're like man i, I just i can't get enough stimulus into my lats with this movement and it's globally pretty taxing what's my next choice from here it's like oh it's like a, a chest supported row pattern maybe something single arm so you can really get a little bit more precise cueing for the lat that's not accepted when they're very very comparable um rationales of why you're moving from one to the other but you see we 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 apply both of them people can squat and they can hack squat people can barbell row and people can also do the single arm cable row. I think that's where there's should, we should not have that dichotomy of yes and no. Like it's you apply all of them to the individual and along the spectrum of advancement for their needs. Yeah, and I think that's where it's like 
we in a general public forum setting will drive very specific cueing across all body parts from an educational content perspective, right? So when we talk about movement patterns and execution, no matter the body part, we're taking it to that level and that depth. And the reason is, is because we know there's a portion of the audience that is struggling with that pattern and that development within that body part, where in the coaching reality of it, if I have someone who has quads that looks like Rami, the amount of cueing that I'm probably going to have to drive with that individual is going to be very minimal within my quad-based patterns. Now, where we're looking at this a little bit more specific is obviously we'll still be doing training videos for their quad-based patterns, but I have proof and evidence in their physique development that they are driving a lot of mechanical tension towards the desired body part, which would be quads in that example, right? Where I'm going to be really taking a fine-tooth needle and comb is if the hamstring development lacks relatively to that quad in a large dichotomy. It's like, okay, now we're going to take that fine-tooth comb that's relatively similar to the content we produce, but in reality, it's in the coaching realm specific to just the body parts that individual needs. Yeah, I think that's how we, we should dissect like in individuals based on those weak, those weak body parts and just to get something that's you know, the, the, the takeaway, like, well, how do I know if it's, like, if this exercise is working for me? And I think, like, Mike Isertel gave some good, like, for are you doing enough volume and are you, f like, just getting something adequate out of your session? And it just goes back to, like, even bro, our bro talk for bodybuilding, right? Like, hey, do you, f do you feel the muscle? Like, is there some level of connection? Do you get some level of pump is there some level of distortion or even soreness that's happening in those in that muscle you're targeting? And if you don't have like any of that, that's a pretty good indicator that you have some issues to work out as far as like execution and cueing goes. Uh, but the strong body parts, you'll you'll know the, the ones they are because they like just get one set deep and it's like a full blown exploding pump. Um, it doesn't take a lot of volume to get them sore. The connection's just phenomenal. Your weak body parts are like the complete opposite. And I think as you get more advanced, that starts to just tease out a little bit more to where you can really see the discrepancies there. For someone that's earlier on, they, they just they don't even have the self-perception to be able to give that feedback as well. And you just have to like let them train, right? But it still be should be learned along along the way. So yeah, I think those are like some some good takeaways. I think and potentially something to point out too is the athlete development part of the process that you just pointed out there. It's like when we are taking an athlete through a long-term pro process, we there's things that kind of down the tree of importance and order need to happen through the development of that athlete's process. And when we look at training in general, I'm looking at two main things straight out the gate. Are the generalities of execution where they need to be? And then is the level of intensity relative to failure for the goal of that week within training accurately applied to the, to the hard working sets? And if we can teach those two early on, the, the nitty-gritty detail stuff that gets developed over an athlete's process is a learned process. And people, people don't realize this until they get through that process themselves. And I like to use like load as an example of this in that – there has been times in the years where I've squatted like, let's say five and a quarter for, for reps, right? Now, what did that five and a quarter look like? And it's, it's slightly shallow on depth, very hip dominant squat pattern, 
not really achieving the goal of quad hypertrophy. But over the years, as I developed as an athlete and gained the capacity to improve that squat, my load hasn't overly improved on a barbell or on a squat pattern. It's just the quality of the actual rep that's improving. And there is a skill and a trait in handling load. And I think for you, this would be like bench pressing, right? Like you have powerlifting bench pressing records where you're nowhere near handling that load for chest development work within hypertrophy. But at the same token, the quality of each rep and the stimulus of each rep is so precise that it doesn't require that load. And it's a product of like, you see this commonality and development of they hear about a logbook for the first time and they're all about progressive overload and they love to do it. And they now have a goal within training every week. And so that becomes their main focus. And so then the next step, once they learn how to apply that is like not allowing that execution to slip across the progressions. And it takes a lot of the excitement out of it for some because the progressions become a lot slower when that execution standard is held across the weeks. But it's also that athlete development process of fostering them into the level that they're at, where if there's something you can take away, it's perfecting the large stimuli first before we're getting into the nitty gritty of these isolation movements that are towards the end of sessions which might be a point to kind of start to go into is like, how are we actually programming this in this conversation? And then when we're looking at these training videos, how are we actually modifying programming within that according to the individual with some, some examples is, man, that athlete might not be ready to squat first. That It may take time to develop to that capacity. And that's okay because we're moving them into that over time. Yeah, it's like depends on their on their background when they come to you. Like usually, if you have like someone that had like an athletic background, they they've been in even high school sports, but collegiate sports, they're gonna have a great ability to do a lot of those patterns and do them well because they've already been exposed to them. I've had some people come to me that they're like new to weight training. They just like got into it maybe through some by some other means, but they haven't been exposed to those type of like hip hinges and squats. And so there's, there's a lot more of a learning curve that has to happen there. So those might not be the best patterns to start with because we want to still like move them towards their goal and not have this long learning process, but there's still like ways that we program in. So that is built in over time. Cause from a, from a beginner standpoint, yeah, like a very braced pattern, it's pretty low learning curve, right? And you'll get a good stimulus right away. You don't have to worry about um, all, all the bracing components that are within that. Um, so you can get someone that's making progress. But at the same time, you do want to have lifts that challenge um, the stability component because that will open up the, the runway for a lot longer progression. And I think just for, for injury profiles down the, down the road, <clears throat> part of this, I think, too, of getting someone in, into, like, just starting out and even intermediate advanced guys is still because that's, that's, I guess it's the balance of the conversation of when you have someone that wants to really cue a lot of exercise, um, nitty gritty, like very detailed that you lose some of the effort behind it. Like there's a, a perception that you can't train hard as well. And I think that is strongly where where I have like the case of like no no you're 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 missing that point of view it's it's just um intensity with accuracy 
And I still think like the beginner, like we should get them training at a very high effort level without compromise of form for safety reasons. And, you know, someone that's just training, like there can be some little uh, lag in, in their, in their form in areas where we don't need to be overly critical because they don't need to be overly accurate just yet. But within, within reason, I think that's where we have guys that are just getting like excessively um, strict on form to where you're limiting effort and also load to where you're not getting very good stimulus. But then that opposite swing in the pendulum is where you're just moving weight around and then you're like a power lifter and that's not accurate as well. So there is the balance. I think that's where it's tough for people to digest that because it's kind of a gray area. It's not just black and white, like super strict. Like we don't allow any like flaring of elbows in this movement or whatever it may be versus the opposite. It's like, yeah, man, just, just load it up and just train like a maniac. It's like, it's, it doesn't have to be so extreme. Like there can be that balance found, but for most people that come in, a lot of times it's, it's training effort is what needs to get pushed up. Um, with, with some exceptions, there's guys that usually can be trained very, very hard, but that's when we might need to get accurate with them. So it depends on what you're seeing needs to get pushed up for that individual. Is it increasing the accuracy or is it increasing the effort? But you will say like a lot of guys get to the very top because they train very hard, not because they've trained very accurately. So I still think if you had to weigh in one variable, make sure you're training really fucking hard because that's going to get you most of the way there. And the little nitty gritty details of queuing and, and execution is for the advanced lifter to get them that extra percentage. So I think don't start with that nitty gritty because you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunity to drive a lot of progress earlier on. And this is what we see just anecdotally, like how guys get to the top still training with shitty form because it's it's good enough and they train really fucking hard and that gets them there have you ever programmed nutsack sets what things that develop the nutsack of an individual just for the purpose of (laughs) of doing that because i certainly have i know that i've done some things that on paper may not be the best programming decision but in order to teach that aspect of training hard it was necessary what's uh What's an example of that? Oh, fa- my favorite is the rest pause on a 45-degree leg press oh. or 25 plus. <laughs> so the rest pause has to end at 25 or more. And so the goal would be like pick a weight that you fail between 15 to 20, take as many rest pauses as you need until you get to over 25. Okay. That's almost kind of like a, like a myo rep too, rest pause slash myo reps. Yeah, so it'd be like full rack, though. So, like, full rack on the rest pauses. So, fail at, like, 17, rack for 15 to 20 seconds, give it a go again. Rack, give it a go again until you get to 25. And from a fatigue standpoint, like, it's kind of idiotic, but it achieves the purpose of teaching the, per- the person where, where they have to be able to take things psychologically because a lot of that's psychological development, right? And I think it's so valuable to be able to give someone – those tools of being able to really just grab onto it when they need it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you almost need someone in person to show you that to, yeah. to push you. It's tough, right? That's where we like for the online client, you can, you know, watch videos, 
in how they train, be like, hey, you need to push this farther. Like next week, do that, add three reps on. That's your goal. So like as a coach, you can kind of give them like this is what needs to happen the next week and they can challenge themselves with that. So they actually have some numbers to go off of when they're just if they if they don't know that effort level and they're just gauging it off solely that, if you have someone now that like they might need some direct rep goals to hit, and even if that pushes them past like I went for the other one. I just couldn't get it. Like, perfect. You finally achieved what we're looking for. But e- even uh, for, you know, someone like uh, isolation movements are still, like, extremely safe movements where someone can easily push it to the failure point. We're not going to have to worry about, like, fatigue and things like that. But it's also, like, a much more tolerable uh, fatigue to get into versus, like, that leg press set that, is just that I think the I think man thinking back I was in college I was doing um hypertrophy specific training it was like a three full body workouts Brian Haycock I think that was the program it he had he'd post this thing it was like he had all this science quoted I'm like okay I can get get on board with this and um but then I was doing crazy shit too because it would be like three sets of squat I'd be like I'm gonna rest pause them so I'd do like barbell squat and I would rest pause barbell squats and I did it once. That was my plan. I did it one time. That was the end of the workout. I went outside and like threw up everywhere. And uh, it was just totally, totally annihilated. Like couldn't even train. Um, highly advise against doing rest pause on back squats. But uh, coming from the, the powerlifting background, like you knew how to grind reps, which was a detriment to getting into bodybuilding in a sense because it was just way too over the top. Um but others don't know how to get there, right? They didn't have that background. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a specific case where I bring bring that up is just teaching that effort level to someone who hasn't experienced it before. And like you said, I prefer to do this in an in person setting when feasible. But it's not always the case, and it's it's something that if you time it at the right time, it's not going to detriment their end goal of hypertrophy over time. Maybe it makes them deload a week early relative to where they were supposed to deload, but in, in the grand scheme of the overall process for an individual, that's only going to be done in a deep off-season setting where you know, we could potentially get away with it fairly easily as long as we're safe within the set. And I, I'm kind of leaning more into athlete development the more that I coach because of the proponent of how much content we do produce in a nitty-gritty execution standpoint is the level of athlete that's coming in is already starting to learn some of these nitty-gritty details before they've even reached me. And so a lot of the times that athlete mindset of developing them in the gym carries over into their execution on all the variables across the board, which in order to swing it back around to the conversation of just train hard or execute well, it's like, I need that person on board 100% on every variable in the coaching process. I can teach them the execution over four, five, six, seven weeks. I need that out of the gate. And so there's something to be said about prioritizing that level of effort, even if it requires that deload to come a week early or something along those lines, and now pushes that athlete into that level of intensity and execution where they almost have like an urgency in the day-to-day, but patience in the process is such a valuable trait in athlete to coach because they feel like every day they wake up, they have to improve. 
And I can teach them the execution that gets there, but it's harder to teach that urgency on the day-to-day process. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's deep, Luke. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you're, you're getting into, like, pulling out the, like, the deeper why of the individual to drive passion on the day-to-day so they have that that internal motivation drive where it they they'll execute every variable full capacity and then the other the details of um, perfecting the execution will come along the way but that effort is there right throughout because you're just completely in, in love and over the moon for the process um which definitely get on board with that's why most people can bodybuild for so long that because they love it. Can I let and let me propose a, a question to you? Because I think this is a portion portion of this conversation. Is do you feel like a lot of this conversation has been promoted very heavily skewed camping wise because people are looking for a shortcut in the development process and trying to shortcut around the time time duration and the effort that it takes to get to a level like an Olympia level. And they feel like doing this is, is how they're going to get there when in reality they haven't even learned some of the basic skills we talked about earlier. I, yes, yes and no to that one. Because I, I think saying it like, hey, this is the shortcut, for some people you may say, I think we're all looking for like the faster track t- to the outcome, right? Like I would love to have been a pro in one year. Like why not? That's awesome. Um if there's anything I could do to make the process more efficient, that's what I want to do. Um, I just don't want to be led astray either. And I think that's kind of the challenge now because we have so much information out that it's easy to get led astray by people that are kind of pseudo experts. Like they talk sciencey. So it seems smart. So you're like, okay, well I don't understand it. So it might be right. Um, and then maybe they have a physique to back it as well. You're like, well, they look good too. Um, and so how do you really vet this person to know, like, this is something that will help bring into your your tool belt to speed you along? And it's hard nowadays to really to, to vet out the pseudo-expert. And so going to that, is that looking for the short, shortcut? I think, yeah, I would say we were all kind of looking for the shortcut because, honestly, I would be too, but not not as the the way to get out of working hard. Like, I, w- I want that, like, a standard. Like, I'm going to work as hard as possible, but if there's ways that I can make it more efficient to speed it along, absolutely, like, absolutely should be done. Now, I'm sure there's individuals, like, how can I not work hard and fast-track this? And that's that would be the, the, the problem when you're, still not going to fast track it and you're going to get lost in the the nuance of these details being taught and you're missing the the forest for the trees type of situation. So I, I think it just depends on the individual, but at least for my point of view, I'm always looking for the way to be more efficient in the process. Yeah. I think it's, it's like a low hanging fruit conversation, right? That's where I, when people I've been asked this question a couple of times, it's the only reason I bring it up. It's like, what is the low hanging fruit for that individual? If they have the effort portion dialed in, let's let's just take that, right? That's the next low-hanging fruit of, okay, they, they have that portion of the process there. They're not trying to circumvent the hard work portion. They're just looking for the efficiency portion of it, right? 
So that's kind of where it's like that low-hanging fruit process is, is important when we look at what gets specified within a coaching situation and the dialogue that gets used between coach and client in a world where, in my opinion, that communication is probably the most important because of the purveyance of education content that's being made. Do you think, like, the these camps that are forming is just some, like, bias between, like, what they've been brought up in, but also they're just forgetting, like, their niche of where that camp tries to preach to, but also within that camp as well that they need to realize the type of person that they're coming in and making sure that they're not getting too sold on their own uh, details. Like there's certain, there's certain, you know, groups that might have been like now kind of tagged in a dogma approach, whatever it may be. Um, We like, whatever, like we train crazy hard to failure. And like, that is like one variable in the whole thing. But now they're kind of like coined that and known as that. And so they have to keep like pushing that reputation. And there's like camps all around, whatever it may be. And they're forgetting that the people they're bringing in, they've already played that same card and now they need to focus on the other variables well. And maybe it's not as balanced in teaching. Um, do, do you think that could be part of it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Because if, if like you self-reflect, especially with on myself, one of the things I think we pride ourselves on is the openness to communication in a conversation as long as the logic that someone can apply is there in order to support their rationale, right? And knowing where I came from, from a training development standpoint, and like how my thought process has improved and what has actually improved the outcomes for my clientele on stage, and the two biggest years of competing, what changed is understanding those variables outside the ones that I had nailed down a lot better where I could apply them in those different places. Cause like people's dialogues change over time, right? Like I'm very self-aware that five years ago, you asked me a question around training. There is like one way to train. And that was what my thoughts were on training. And now it's like, we can skin a cat a hundred different ways. Here's the variables how do we balance these variables together? And that's how I propose training now. And I think people getting caught in camps and leaning into them hard is where this conversation starts to arise. Yeah. And I think you're, you're going to kind of naturally fall into the camp that you already have some bias towards and you enjoy or how you got exposed to it and how you got some results already. Like I came from powerlifting, DC training. It was train hard, train to failure that was like the the dogma that was kind of pushed right above all else. So you start looking for more information around that for like confirmational bias, right? Or you start looking for coaches that promote that as well. And then, then, then you're, when you see people that are preaching something else that goes against your own belief system in training, well, it has to be bullshit. That's not what gets results. And you completely close yourself off to this other thought process of maybe there's something they're doing I could get it, have an advantage to. So 
I think it's like don't close yourself off to even even the camp extremes. Just be open, um, but be critical. And I think that can help s- try to gain something from around everyone. So if I came from the group of like, hey, forms everything, and they have these other guys who are here training, training to failure, be like, man, I think y'all are missing the mark here. It's like maybe there's something I'm not doing, you know. Um, so I think you do have to. Usually in this stuff, a lot of the truth lies in the middle. And that's when I think you, you are finding groups that talk in uh, absolutes. They use never, always, rather than, you know, sometimes in context. Uh, it almost makes someone sound less credible when they speak without absolutes because it's like, well, what is this guy even trying to say? It sounds convoluted. He doesn't, he's not affirmative in what he's, what he's speaking on. And so it makes you sound like you're not a, a authoritative figure. Uh, but that's really why, because it is so uh, nuanced when it comes down to the individual level. But there should be some absolutes we can speak on for maybe some generalities. But I think that's when you put up like your kind of radar, like, all right, this shouldn't be always and never, but in certain c- circumstances for the individual. And trying to, that, I think that helps vet, vet out the, the camps a little bit more. Um, but yeah, as, as humans, I don't think we like operating in the gray area. Like it's easier to understand like the black and white, right? Train hard, train a failure. Okay, clear. I can just go do that. I don't have to think about maybe sometimes I should train a failure. Maybe sometimes I shouldn't. Um, so yeah, it gets a little bit murky for people. I, I get that. So I think, and that's kind of the conversation in a nutshell. I think the biggest question leaving the audience is like, well, John and Luke, what the hell do I do from here, right? It's like, how do I how do I go about it with everything you guys talked about? And I think if there's like three main takeaways, I'm, I think we could both give this and it'd be, one, set the program design and, and decide on it early on and, and experience it because you're not going to learn until you, you go in and experience it. Within the first two weeks of that program design, use video Keep a couple reps in reserve. Make sure you execute things to the standard that you intellectually understand and hone in on that and keep that as your standard and then develop that effort across the entire training block. And then when you get to the end of that training block, look back and see how your progress was and then potentially look at what you may need to learn more in order to be better the next block. And the reason I say that is because a paralysis by analysis is something that is very easily done today with the con- content purveyance. It's like, oh, well, Luke over here pendulum squatted seven and a quarter or seven plates, but, you know, he just told me to make sure that I'm getting to full depth and controlling the eccentric and making sure that we have all these pieces together. It's like, Yes, because there's levels in which each aspect's applied in that I've earned that right to put that weight on that bar because I've been through that process, right? And because I can translate that skill into that load. And so develop that skill for yourself. And I think if you just decide on it, set yourself up for success with the attention to detail on the forefront of that program you're trying. As you develop across it, you'll be able to take notes on what worked and what didn't. Yeah, train accurate, train hard. Um, there was a, a, just like a reel put out with Jay Cutler. And someone was like, you know, they're critiquing Jay Cutler's form, right? Because he 
yeah, he he like swung some weight sometimes, and but his his video response was like, it's like yeah, you know, I I, I swung some weights, but the connection I had with the muscle while I was doing that, I was honed in on it. Like I was extremely connected and you know, there's, there's balance within that doesn't mean go swing weights like Jay Cutler. But I think the takeaway is that, um, that internal connection was really high for what he was ability to do. And I think if you just watch from the outside view, you'd, you'd miss that. And so that's bodybuilding. It's like, we're trying to drive tension directly into a muscle. So having, always focus on trying to have the connection, building a form around having that, and then training effort level that drives that stimulus so you can have the adaptive responses occur. And, you know, not to, well, yeah, no, definitely to intentionally promote J3U <laughs> because why not? Um, I've had people, like, go through our hypertrophy lectures and they're like, and, and this isn't to like shit on my own thing, but they're like, I'm, I'm a little confused because I don't have like, there's not the J3U program to go apply now. And I, I didn't teach it like that. I didn't want to teach like, here is my program and to go apply it to all your clients. I wanted to teach the framework of hypertrophy. So you realize that there is like, like you said, Luke, lots of different ways to, to skin a cat. I don't know if that's politically correct anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's there's lots of ways to get get growth to occur. Um, some might have more volume, slight less effort. Some might be like train and failure all the time with with less volume. But there, those are variables, and I wanted to teach all the variables and show how it should apply for the individual because you're coaching individuals. So we don't want to just take a system and make your clients fit that system. Um, you want to fit the system to your clients. And that's how I taught it in J3U. So you can take that and have the understanding to be able to critically think and uh, assess your clients and fit it to their needs. And that, that is what we just spoke on completely today. It's that this is needs-based for the individual. And it's not just fitting your own bias to them. It's seeing where they need to move up from a developmental aspect. So, I agree. But anyway, everybody, we thank you very much for tuning in. And we'll talk to you next time.